you are listening to the Cyclist Magazine podcast. I am your host, Joe Robinson. With me is Mr. James Spender. Buongiorno, Joseph. And on today's show, we have Mr. Will Pearson, the eponymous owner and man in charge of the world's oldest bike shop, Pearson's, in London. We have got Will on today to talk about the last 18 months, which have been among the hardest the bike industry have ever experienced because of a lovely mix of Brexit and the COVID-19 pandemic. But before we delve into why it's been so hard for bike shops and why it's harder for you as a consumer to get bits for your bikes, James and I are going to rattle through some of the things that we're liking and disliking in the world of cycling. James, good to see you again. How are you? Um, What have you done since the last time we talked? spoke uh, i've seen the dave the juggler since what you like and what you're disliking about cycling uh i haven't haven't heard hide nor hair from dave the juggler which uh i can only assume is good news good news is no news is good news where international jugglers probably busy 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 time for the jugglers school kids are on holiday now so he's probably doing a load of gigs in park joe you know i did i forgot to mention one of his top juggling tricks was that he makes a cup of tea while juggling yeah and he's like Ooh. the secret is you only use cold water because <laughs> obviously hot water can scold, as we know, yeah. kids. But yeah, he make, he juggles all of the parts of a cup of tea and then makes it and then drinks it. That's pretty impressive. Cold tea, though. Cold tea, but... cold tea, though. Uh, one of the things that I've been very much liking has been, in a strange way, shouldn't be happening this time of year, of course, either, cycling in the rain. Right, okay. So I've done uh, done a couple of uh, rides recently. I was going to do the Dunwich Dynamo, which, uh, if anyone hasn't heard of that, starts in London finishes uh, just past Ipswich on a beach called Dunwich and it was started by some couriers who used to gather at this pub in London Fields and decided one night one night to um, cycle basically northeast until they hit the coast which they did yeah. approximately 100 miles away and they did it overnight to the full moon so we were all set to do this a group of us looking at the weather that morning it just looked shiters so we just we just we just canned it off Turned out, actually, that evening wasn't too bad at all. Uh, but in our kind of didn't want to let the side down, do you know, you've got to do something because you've been mm. prepared for this kind of ride. We thought, oh, we go out and do part of it the next day in the morning, Sunday morning. Went out quite, it was all right. The weather was all right. Stopped for a pint, sat under this awning, and literally the heavens opened. The, unpre- the impre- unpredictability of the recent weather, James, is something that I want to talk about because. I don't think I've experienced a summer in which I've seen so much torrential downpour. Mate, I've never seen the rain come up from the floor so many yeah. times. Like I've been cycling where I don't know what's worse, sunglasses or no sunglasses, because I just can't see anything. I've lo- you're looking, you're look. It's like it looks like um, the world looks like someone's thrown water on uh, a part dry painting. When the rain's putting you in pain, you know that it's abnormal yeah and that's what's happening at the moment if you get caught out in some of these showers the rain's actually it's like someone's it's like a mini person a a very small like borrower is punching you yeah (laughs) an army of very small borrowers punching you and then hey it's like you're john goodman and you've been tied up yeah and they're assaulting you with their mini fists and i like to think that hail is when the borrowers are headbutting you repeatedly yes. so yeah and it's yeah I've, i find myself went out on um went out on wednesday uh with liz met, went and met her down the pub and i changed that day 
three times. I got caught in the rain. I had various errands to run in the day, and then cycling. Did you Jaja Gabor? Yeah, cycling. nothing to do with the weather. <laughs> yeah, cycling. <laughs> but the worst thing is, like, I don't know what to. I don't know what to ride in. Not just um, so. One, so on the way to the pub because we were going out that evening, I actually stopped part way when it started raining, and I was just like, "Screw this!" I just got changed in the middle of the road. I was down to my boxers, changing into my spare t-shirt and shorts, having decided I was going to wear the clothes I was going to wear later wow. on. On yeah. the bike, I was like, I can't, this is just going to get soaked. And so I did change. And luckily I did, because when I got to the pub, I was like a drowned rat. And I had to ask the barman for blue roll just to like, and I haven't, I haven't been, I haven't had a man happen upon me in a toilet, drying my underwear in underneath the hand dryer for a long time. So that was nice. But it was, it's just fiendishly annoying. But the worst one is shoes, because what do you do with shoes? All shoes, even if you've got mug guards on, get insanely wet. Yeah, so I started riding in flip flops. Because at least they're plastic, and there's no socks. Mm. But then that just seems there'll be no there'll be no smell. They'll they'll capture no smell like a normal shoe. Shoes the rain. stink. What do you do about that? I'd have got an Uber if I if I shoot, mate, if I'm on it. <laughs> but at the same time, so we're in this pub uh, Sunday morning post Dunwich Dynamo. Hadn't done it. Um, kind of kicking ourselves, looking at the rain. But we had a nice nice couple of jars, and then we just had to crack on, and we all went out cycling in the rain and suddenly it was like this is all right actually once you get completely soaked it's just that type two fun where it's and when you get back obviously have your shower blah blah blah. but when you're out there um it changes the landscape so you can do a ride that you've done a hundred times but if the weather is very extreme it changes that landscape and it suddenly made this whole gave a whole new dynamic to this ride that we'd all done before and and you get that glorious smell which we were discussing earlier um, the tail ends, uh, bookends, a, a rainstorm, mm. petrichor, which is that kind of organic, stony smell that you can smell. Pe- you- pe- petra meaning rock. Petra meaning rock, yes, Joe, in, from Latin. Icor mean... Icor, what's Icor? Icor meaning, meaning the liquid running through the veins of the gods. Of the Greek gods, that's correct. He's done his etymo- etymological research. Can't say that word. What's the etymology of etymology? Anyway, there's another question. So, yeah, petrichor, that's the name when people go, I can smell the rain. That's petrichor. So I like that. It's almost worthwhile just to get that smell. And it's almost worthwhile just to get that amazing feeling of coming in and having a shower and stripping off and putting on nice, fresh clothes. Similar vein to you, during the week I committed a mass act of heresy by entering a 5k running race. I saw a picture of you doing that. You did. You look. And you look like a, a. You look like a broken man. I had five k running race. It was five kilometers off road in a local woods. Uh, it was one hundred and thirty one meters of elevation in that five k, uh, and it rained so hard that it went dark. <laughs> <laughs> there was a point where it went so dark we couldn't see where we were going. It was so slippery, but it was a good laugh. Uh, but I along that line of. I don't think I've ever been so wet. I, yeah. like you, had to get changed in a like a housing estate afterwards. Just, I was completely drenched, muddy. My shoes are still wet. We were recording this a week on. Yeah. My shoes are still damp and they stink of mould and mildew. So that's what I'm I saying. I don't know what to do. How do you, what do you do? I don't, I've never worked this out. And, you know, everyone will know this from cycling shoes, but any kind of sports shoes after all. There's that thing where when the rain... Wearing them damp with rain water in just somehow creates this permanent smell, which 
as far as I know, right, smells like that kind of develop from bacteria. So you've got to kill the bacteria. How do you kill? What is that bacteria? Why can't it be killed? Bleach. I don't know. Uh, maybe just put them immediately in a tumble dryer. Um, I don't know. Maybe. But I, I, haven't got an, I haven't got a solution from it because I'm suffering similar problems with my running shoes. Yeah. James. Uh, so I'm not going to offer you. Maybe a listener has a yeah. solution. Maybe a, a listener has a little like hack that they do when their cycling shoes get wet or maybe some of their other cycling gear gets wet which they think is particularly useful because we haven't found a solution to it at all in years i think ever since ever since i first opened uh, a boot bag do you remember boot bags for your football boots you still got a boot bag mate yeah i remember like leaving my boot bag from saturday to saturday out the back of my parents uh, kitchen it was probably like eight years old or something, and opening it up, and it was literally it looked like like a, a city of spiders had set themselves up. Yes, the little webbing just, on the the, the mold. The, the mold was incredible. It was like Mrs. Havisham's wedding table in Dickens. Yeah. It was just, <laughs> and they those gola those gola boots were never the same again. I'm a big fan of that. Actually, I do like. I do. There's a part of me that really enjoys that smell of like mildew and mold off of a a wet sports trainer because it reminds me of being. Like it reminds me of better times in childhood. Yeah, also probably <laughs> reminds you that spores in your lungs are really dangerous and like kill <laughs> many more people than you realise a year. Yeah, I should probably be uh, careful with that. Yeah. Uh, anything else that you're not liking in particular, cycling related? If you had to really dial it down. If I had to bike? really dial it down, cycling. Yeah, I struggle. I struggle with the Wahoo. So another um, another ride. I have actually been doing more riding than I've given myself credit for here. Turns out, just thinking now, went for a ride, took Friday off. Uh, again, went for a ride with Liz down to um, a little pub called the Three Horses in Elstead, which Elstead is in the South Downs. It's kind of near Petersfield. And as right. pubs go, it's got a terrible sign, but it has one of the most, it's a beautiful pub. It's like an old rambly, multiple building thatched kind of pubby thing, low ceilings. And yeah. it hands down has the best view of the South Downs from its pub gardens you have ever seen. What's on tap? What's on tap? Only ales, <laughs> only ah, cask right, ales, literally only cask ales. But what's in the garden? Loads of little bantams, and bantams, mate, they are they're pretty cute. As in the the boxing weight? Yeah, yeah, tiny little boxes. Right, yeah, 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 tiny little tiny little boxes with plumage. Um, but yeah, the reason I mention this is because we wahooed the route from the station because we didn't cycle out of London, cycle from Hazelmere, and wahoo. I, how do you turn it off so it doesn't take you down bridleways? And how do you also tell it it's been raining so that those bridleways are going to be mud baths? Because it's like, oh, look at it. And you look on your screen and it looks like a path. It's indiscernible as far as I can tell. Is that a road? Is that like a lane? Or is that a road? Or is that a bridleway? You can't know. But you just, you know, it's hopefully off the beaten track. That's what Wahoo's trying to do. But but we found ourselves on a couple of just like, you know, I'm fishtailing all the way down a hill through the nettle bushes at the bottom. I haven't had so many nettle rashes on my legs since I was nine. Like, how do you stop that happening? That's So that's what I haven't been liking, is the mapping. So anyway, so that's me. How about, and, you know, finally, what other than how hard trail running is and smelly shoes, what's been grinding your gears? Uh, I'll be quick, because we've rambled on. Uh, the thing that I'm really enjoying, the thing that's not grinding my gears, but in fact lubricating them to a point of efficient, beauty is a little base layer that i've just got from a company called albion they're a london-based sort of cycling clothing brand real small you're so london i know i'm so uh, just we everything are, we i do are. is within the m25 i know it's awful Ugh. 
I'm so disgusting. But uh, nothing to do with West Bromwich, or all to do with really good cycling apparel. They basically have a gilet this packable, it's light. Um, it's also white and almost see-through, so it looks quite fun. But the big thing that I like, two things I like about it, it's got a breast pocket, which you can just keep in, like, I don't know, a love letter. Um, handkerchief. A handkerchief. Corsage. A pack of, you know, some Rennies. 20 Marlboro Lights. <laughs> 20 Marlboro Lights. Uh, and also, it's toggled. So instead of it just sort of being like a, a loose hem at the bottom... There's two mm-hmm. toggles on either side, so you can sort of bring it in to give you a more uh, sort of figure-hugging, uh, complimentary look. <laughs> but <laughs> like also, that. for practicality, it sort of tightens in and means that, like, there's none of that sort of flappage to where you can get water underneath the gilet, which is ultimately why you're wearing it. Uh, That's, it is ultimately why you're wearing it. It's ultimately why we wear anything. <laughs> exactly. For it to sort of complement our figures, all of yeah. which are equally beautiful in our own way. Yeah. Um, and things that I'm not liking, James, um, like you, unpredictable weather, went out for a ride at the weekend. It just felt like every direction I went in was a headwind, which makes no sense because wind, no. wind can't be all directional. It must be it's in one direction. They say that, but you know, as as we both know, um, I come from Portsmouth, so we're you know born of born of sailors and women of the night, and the sailors impart the wisdom that there's such a thing as a fluke wind, which does seem to come from all directions. And that can be to do with headlands, it can be to do with buildings, it can be to do with trees, or it can be to do with the fact that you're going in a circle. Or the fact to do that I'm just not that fit. Uh, either way, <laughs> that's what I was enjoying. Um, and we've been rambling on for too long, so let's get into the interview. Uh, as we said at the top of the show, Mr. Will Pearson, owner of Pearson Bike Shop, oldest bike shop in the world. We talk about Brexit, COVID, bikes, why you can't get a Shimano rear derailleur for love nor money etc etc it's quite an interesting listen so enjoy it now um did you you used to uh race uh cyclocross back in the day will is that right it was it was cyclocross um my dad was a real enthusiast on on cross and um we would invariably get dragged out of bed on a sunday morning to um more of the local sort of courses like uh, Shirley Hills, which is not used anymore, which is, is probably one of the best cross courses in the UK because um, it's very hilly and pebbly yeah. and it's got a bit of everything, really. It's got flats. <laughs> it's got sprints. They used to use that for the national champs didn't a few times, didn't they? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Mm. And uh, it's, it's such a good course. But I think um, the local council took... Um, upon themselves to stop it because of complaints from dog walkers and that type of thing it was just sort of you know it was never it was never really explained but um but he used to then organize lots of youth cyclocross as well so um my brother guy and i and also my sister who really didn't like the idea of it um was we were sort of all dragged out and um and rode cross and it, it it was brilliant i have to say it was absolutely brilliant um, and then Guy Guy went on to the national squad, and um, I just sort of carried on riding bikes just to en- enjoy it more than anything. But yeah, his um, yeah, I, I love cross, and I, I think that's probably now um, I tend to sort of sit in the, the, the gravel camp a bit more um, than anything now um, because it's sort of that natural progression. You know, it's just such a a, a nice thing to be out on your bike off road. Um, but still going quicker than you might do on a mountain bike. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
So you and Guy are fifth generation Pearson custodians of, of, of the Pearson shop started in 1860. That's, those are the right dates and figures. And all of you through those times were, were all cyclists because um, the shop began life. So for those of those, those listeners that haven't, um, don't know, the, aren't familiar with the Pearson story, Pearson is officially recognised by the Guinness World Records, Book of World Records, as the oldest bike shop in the world. Not just in the UK, in the world. So even 25 years older than Bianchi, which is the oldest bike brand in the world, and they love shouting about that. And it started life as a blacksmith's, is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. Well, um, the, the shop, the original shop in Sutton was uh, basically a staging town outside of London um, to the port. So a lot of the um, cargo that was coming in through ports or going out supports was um coming out directly south from london and um so my great great grandfather thomas pearson um started up a blacksmith having moved from cobham and where his father was a blacksmith and to, to pick up the sort of I, I suppose the blacksmith trade there they would deal with lots of iron work from um shoeing horses to manufacturing whatever you wanted basically within um iron and steel I think with the advent of the bicycle, the typically scenario would would happen is somebody would wander in with a, a broken back of a, a hobby horse or or something that had been cobbled together somewhere else and um and they they sort of weld it back together on the forge. Um and progressively they thought, well, this is um this is much easier than doing everything else and um that they're doing now. And they, they gradually progressed into um, into bicycles and uh, was there a point where i'm assuming it kind of because you guys now obviously have pearson bicycles as pearson has its own bike brand as well as being a bike shop that does bike fit all manner of retail stuff um and obviously uh, you know classic bike shop territory repairs builds whatever um but was there a point where your great great grandfather thought now's the time to start making bicycles myself when was that? We, we're not entirely sure because the records are a little bit um, shaky around that time. We've we've got um, quite a lot of photographic evidence and receipt evidence from um, the vaults, which indicate that they were beginning to make bikes around the 1900s, sort of 19, I say 1910, 1920. They were beginning to make their own um, bikes. And the first one was called the Endeavour, um, the Pearson Endeavour. And um, we don't really know exactly what happened after that. We haven't got the records, which is a real shame. Um, although the Sutton Library have got quite, a, they've got a whole Pearson section um, of oh. various things that have happened over the, the last 160, 60 odd years. And um, yeah, they, we, we sort of try and take our cues from what we learned from our grandfather, who was a great historian and tended to keep, fairly decent records from i suppose the 40s onwards um around the wartime and thereafter so um and it, and it was something that we always we made um pearson bikes um and they, because they were steel and um, typically around that time from the 30s 40s onwards um then it was all obviously manufactured either on site or locally um through other frame builders and so 
during that entire period, uh, obviously you're still a bike shop that's in existence now. Um, but we touched upon, you know, the pandemic. Can't get away from that before we we came on air. Um, and you didn't shut during during the pandemic. You you had essential services kind of status given to bike shops by the government. Has there has there ever been a time when when Pearsons wasn't in operation throughout that 160 years? Uh, not as far as we know. There was obviously uh, First World War, Great Depression, and then the Second World War. And during the Second World War. And we had a bit of an inkling um, just around the start of the pandemic that bike shops might be given essential services. I know that there was quite a bit of lobbying through um, the industry to keep bike shops as essential services. But during the war, our, our forefathers were held back to um, serve um, the public to keep people moving um, because petrol was very limited and the bicycle was seen to be something that would actually keep Britain um, on the move. And so they weren't allowed to, to go off as much as they wanted to, as, as we believe they, they said they wanted to. You know, there was a lot of, uh, they, they took quite a bit of stick really from local people saying, well, you know, you're, why aren't you at war? And they had been ordered to, to stay open as a business. And um, sure enough, when the pandemic came around, we, we had been doing a lot of work for NHS and essential workers. Um, there was almost like a call to arms, really, to keep people on the move. And we had a suspicion that we might be able to stay open, but we planned basically to close until um, Boris made the announcement um, the night before. And we saw that there was an exemption um, for bike shops. And we thought, great, you know, because we I think at the time there was massive demand for people who were just jumping on their bikes um, and um, they, were, they were being told more or less to stay off public transport, um, but they were still having to go to essential jobs um, within the emergency services and obviously um, from the NHS point of view, plus other people who were just general support and um, doing jobs that just had to carry on. So we, we were generally doing free servicing and bike checks and it was like a real sort of it felt like quite a war effort in in some respects and it was very satisfying for our staff um to do that because they they felt so you know they were they were doing their bit and it just when we got the essential services status then we we carried on and that's i think really where sort of the perfect storm hit the bike industry it's, it's, it has been a perfect storm. It's a, that's a good way of describing it because this last 12, or it's over 12 months now, has been probably the biggest boom that we've experienced as an industry ever. It certainly eclipsed that first wave in 2012 with the Olympics and obviously Wiggins winning the tour. We thought that was a sort of a new beginning for cycling in the UK. But just explain in terms of, from your, your perspective as a, as a bike shop and, a, and, a, and within the industry, how much things have accelerated in that in the last 12 months for you we have seen um, a massive uh, acceleration probably we're almost two three possibly four years ahead of where we plan to be um, we as a business had always planned to have predominantly Pearson product um, as our offering um, whether it's our own bikes or our, our top clothing range which um, we had launched about two years ago, um, along with accessories, but we also had really good allied partners that we sold in store, um, like 
Trek bikes and um, specialised. There are two sort of big brands alongside the sort of staple of Brompton. But um, our push was really to, to have a, a good allied partner, one of those, or certainly two of those, including Brompton, um, but really focus on developing our own brand. I think with the, the huge demand in bike stock, we just found that there wasn't the supply chain. The supply chain broke very quickly um, for the big, the big players, um, especially the big American brands. And um, there just was this obvious, well-reported shortage of bikes um, plus components. But fortunately, we, we managed to keep our supply chain running. Um, and typically, most of our manufacture is done through Taiwan, where we will design it here and it manufacture it in the Far East. But Taiwan didn't really get too affected initially um, by the pandemic. They, they were seen to have, they were closed really probably only about two or three weeks, if that. Mm. And they, they really kept the, um, the supply chain going. So we worked really hard to make sure that we um, had that continuity of stock. And I think our biggest threat now is, is things like Shimano is quite hard to come by, um, yeah. although we're, we're doing pretty well on that. But yeah, it certainly accelerated our plans very quickly. I suppose being the size we are, we're not a, a massive company at this point, but we've been growing pretty steadily over the last 10, 15 years. There's an element of being quite nimble and agile to adapt uh, to certain situations. So I think really in terms of the, those changes, they have been rapid, um, but it's been a very exciting time for us. Did you see a new uh, clientele come through the door as well? Because one thing I've noticed in the last 12 months, having, you know, ridden my bike every Saturday and Sunday for years and years, you see the same people out on the roads, same kind of bikes. And in that last 12 months, especially last summer, I saw a completely new stable of people that had found the bike. And you saw people in like normal clothes, not in Lycra, that you'd have never seen riding a road bike before suddenly doing it. So did you notice that, people coming through your doors and asking about Pearson and who you would have never seen before? Yeah, definitely, definitely. Uh, there's all ages. And I, I think the probably what encouraged a lot of that um, was the lack of traffic on the roads. Um, mm. It suddenly galvanised people. And to have that ability to ride safely and also be limited with the options that you had in terms of exercise, I mean, it was pretty much either go for a walk, go for a run or, or ride your bike and all other bets were, were pretty much off in any other sport or even activity really. So there was very much a captive audience and so many people turned to the bike as a way of not only just getting their hours exercises at first sort of started, but also as a way out of keeping them, them themselves um, slightly saner in, the, in a lockdown and a very um, quite a stressful um, experience really of the whole pandemic and so I think the bike has become a real sort of saviour for a lot of people so we we were seeing everything from complete newbies and they were buying really anything they could get their hands on almost I mean I, I have to say a lot of people weren't all that fussy as long as it had two wheels and it met their budget <laughs> it was just a there you are you know and off, off you go and certainly the more I suppose experienced and advanced cyclists were also still coming in because a lot a lot of people were sitting at their desks um, for 
longer than they would ever do, even if they're in an office or workplace. They were using um, the bike as a way of just clearing the brain, mm. you know, and, and getting a breather um, within the sort of legal limits um, that were set at the various stages of lockdown. So, yeah, a lot of really new customers, really um, galvanised customers. And um, what I hope to see is that a lot of those people won't be just leaving the, the bike sort of rotting in the in the back of the shed type of um, scenario and will be out there again riding this spring and summer and a lot have carried on through um, winter and have already progressed onto new bikes mm. so um, you only have to look in Richmond Park on a weekend with a bit of sunshine and it's like nothing you've ever seen I mean it's extraordinary it's almost like a, a cycling festival yeah but speak, speaking of uh, those those bikes rust, um, rusting in the backs of sheds, um, I definitely have. I don't think I've seen since probably about 1997 so many 26 inch wheel mountain bikes suddenly come out. I'm assuming your mechanics uh, were were scrabbling to find those 26 inch um, 2.1 inch tubes out the back somewhere. There is a shortage. I think there's a world shortage on 26 inch tubes. But with that with that shortage thing in mind, so you touched on it there, Will. Um, people kind of almost not being fussed about what they're buying so long as it had two wheels. And that's not just driven by them wanting to get on a bike today. It's also driven by availability. Um, and, you know, you, you'll have a different business model to, say, a nationwide chain or to an online retailer. So I appreciate that you can only speak from a certain perspective. But you'll also know people in the industry. You're very well connected. So what's what's the general feeling amongst your peers and, and amongst you know yourself and Guy and your staff as to why there is such a long wait on a bicycle at the moment or why it is so difficult to get hold of a 105 rear mech all of a sudden? Uh, well, I, I think there's a few reasons, um, really. Uh, you know, UK is not exclusive in terms of the cycling boom. It's happened globally. Um, and, and there's only a certain amount of factories um, around the world that will supply bike parts and there's a certain capacity um, even with a few extra shifts put in um, in those you're only going to be able to supply a certain amount and demand is such that I think the there's a certain amount of panic buying from manufacturers that's happened mm. it's also driven I think by potentially a slightly it, it it may be a false demand in that there are customers who because of the the sheer lack of stock will go around dealers. And I'm sure that this is happening um, worldwide where they reserve a bike in perhaps not just one, but two or three different bike shops because the lead time is, is that much greater. And that drives demand through um, to the suppliers that they're dealing with. Mm. And then that knocks on through to the factories in terms of the orders. And um, that panic buying is, is certainly, I think, happening um across every um, aspect of the supply chain the supply chain is so complicated um, and relatively long that it has a whole sort of backing up effect which almost brings things not to a gridlock but um we're seeing the capacity in factories now uh, is booked out for almost two years mm. you know and even even trying to uh, source saddles um, some of the factories are, are booked out for 18 months. <laughs> so it's wow. it's extraordinary. Um, and I think that that might change um, over the next maybe 18 months to two years in that 
um, depending on how solid the demand is really because nobody genuinely knows um, how long this sort of surge in demand will carry on and I think there's a lot of um, reasons that um, would would vary that in that people going back to work um, people's enthusiasm to carry on cycling um, transport policy and how that might affect uh, demand so a lot of the manufacturers I think are really hedging their bets so they're booking capacity in in a lot of the factories um, which tends to uh, slow everything up really um, for whichever level you're at and is that the is that the sort of the bigger companies doing that who obviously you get the you know not naming any names but you'll have the worldwide massive behemoths of the bike industry and are they going in and kind of using their weight to sort of block book I think so. I, th- I think there's a certain element of that. Um, you know, the, the factories will always respond to bigger manufacturers on on the whole. Um, but there are factories that the bigger manufacturers won't touch because they're not big enough. So uh, it happens. Uh, it's happening at all levels. Yeah. Um, luckily, uh, the factories, a lot of the factories that we deal with um, have managed to keep our supply going pretty well. Um, we, we've got a couple of patchy bits. Um, coming up in the in the next year but where one model might um, become trickier um, another one comes back into play Mm. Um, so on balance we're we're in a pretty good position um, in terms of supply but it drives more um, requirement for uh, I suppose work in terms of a lot of our staff who are involved within the supply chain and the design side of things are having a lot a lot more conversations where you might have had to ask one question. So you now have to ask um, one question. You're, you might have to ask ten, mm. um, and you know you you multiply that by all the questions you have to ask every day, and it suddenly becomes a, a really massive um, task just to keep the supply chain going. Would you say it's a bike shops in a better or a worse position than they were, say? Uh, beginning of 2013 so or, or, or the summer of 2012 that first initial wave that post olympics post brad winning tour everyone's getting into bikes i'm assuming it's a different uh scenario at the moment because as we say there's there's lots of people coming in at the kind of more entry level side of things commuting just as a pastime whereas maybe 2012 awoken people the more competitive higher end side of the market is it tougher at the moment or is it literally as like we can't sell enough this is fantastic let's make hay while the sun shines because i think people have a perception that if demand is high in an industry then that means it's good for the industry but that's i'm assuming that's not necessarily the case it comes with its own level of stress having to keep up yeah i think it it varies between different uh retailers because some some retailers will be um more mass market and others will be higher end and sort of more exclusive to the sectors that they serve in terms of the types of bikes. So um, we're typically more um, road adventure and urban types of bikes, whereas, you you know, the, the mass market would be, uh, I suppose, to a degree, slightly harder hit in that there's across the whole portfolio, there's probably big shortages Well, there are big shortages. So um, I think that the big thing really is, whatever you're doing is to be able to um, give the 
the best possible service to customers. Um, and if you can, but as part of that is recommending the correct type of product for their needs, as opposed to just throwing the nearest thing and two wheels at them, which was mm. not necessarily um, the case from us. Um, although we, we did sell out of every bike that we, we had in stock during the pandemic, um, just because people weren't as fussy. They, you know, despite saying to people that this is actually not the right size for you and it's probably not the type of right type of bike that you'll really um, be best carrying on riding, um, they would just be, they would buy it, you know, and you would almost be arguing with them not to buy it. <laughs> it was mainly because, you know, it, it, there's a certain element of trust that we um, try to, you know, to, to get across for, for customers so that they they come back mm. because you've given um, the best possible advice and the best possible product for to meet their needs. And um, so I think that it is a tough place to be wherever you are um, within sort of the retail industry. And it's probably not um, just it's not exclusive to, to bikes because there, there are lots of issues in other industries where supply is also a massive issue. I don't think that service should be um, forgotten um, just because there's um, a boom in demand. Um, we we still have bikes in the store. A lot of them aren't necessarily correct for some of the people who walk in and are, are looking for bikes. And we, you know, we make that very clear to them and um, yeah, people appreciate it. And we'll recommend other um, retailers to to explore and mm. to find the right type of bike for them. Mm -hmm. And what, what would you say to, um, to the idea that it's going to take, which I've heard bandied around smaller retailers through to much larger manufacturers that's basically going to take effectively two years so end of tail end of 2022 to get back to what we would kind of consider normal you know you can get those discounted gray market goods on wiggle hand over fist you can go to pearson and you've got five sizes of each bike how is that really the case or is that kind of crazy to say that i would tend to agree yeah i, I don't those days of uh buying grey imports and buying kit uh, cheaper than we can actually buy it at trade. Um, I hope we, we won't see those days so soon because it, it's generally a bit of a race to the bottom. And it doesn't, the outcome really for the customer is not always particularly positive. I think there's a, there is a, a, a really a, a big place for, and, and I'm talking about service, but, you know, to, to guide people into making the best buying decisions. So, but I, I do think probably uh, two to three years um, is my guess. Uh, we're fortunate in the fact that we have got a pretty good supply chain um, in place. So, what we're what we've always positioned ourselves to sell, um, we're able to sell alongside our bike fitting and um, sort of workshop services. We're in a pretty good shape, I would say, um, although it is a, a battle. But to to go back to the the norm of what was, I reckon, probably best part of three years um, as it stands. It seems to be really, really tricky where, wherever we're looking, if we're looking at alternative um, development. And certainly I think the, the interesting thing, um, which I, I know we haven't really touched upon, is the sort of the whole e-bike side of, um, of retail, what, what is going to happen in that little sector as well. Would it be fair to say just 
last on this sort of supply issues. Would it be fair to say that the issue now going forward won't be so much you guys building frames and getting frames, but the sort of component side of the business? So having the, the finishing stuff. So anecdotally, I use a local independent bike shop, Welling Cycles, just an old like just your usual bike shop on the road. And I went in recently to get some work done on a bike and. Uh, Luckily, well, I say luckily, I ride Campagnolo and he said, you're lucky because we've got stock at Campagnolo. If you'd have needed the same thing in Shimano, you'd have been waiting till uh, February in 2022. Um, so is that what, is that going to be the issue for people like yourself and for those sort of independent bike shops on the high street that rely on me or James coming in and needing a new 105 cassette and chain, will it be that that's the issue for them going forward? Potentially. I think it depends on how um, solid your ordering is and the, the breadth of Shimano and what might walk into any independence workshop is, is so broad in terms of covering all the various sort of disciplines within Shimano, but also historic um, equipment mm. and a lot of a lot of it, I imagine, is going to be a long way out for a typical ad hoc um, order from a from a um, retailer to a supplier. So, yeah, I think it's going to be pretty pretty tricky. We, we've been fortunate in that we we pre ordered a lot of Shimano in terms of our, the group sets that go through to um, our bike builds, and again, we're not um, really too worried about it we're in a pretty good place but it does take a lot of planning um and typically where you do just need a, a rear mech for instance um for a repair it, it will be really challenging i, I think mm. you know, and there were uh, uh, stories of people just scouring the nets and buying components just to satisfy repairs at um normal rrp they weren't getting a trade price um on on the components and just to satisfy the, the, the customer and get the repair out of the workshop. And I guess that, I guess that brings us on to another issue, which is the, the internet and the mass, the mass sort of online retailers that you said would have had, you know, sold those gray items at next to nothing. Did that contribute to that issue? The fact that we had this system in where you could, go on to an online retailer, we won't name one, but you could buy a Shimano cassette at half the price that John, who owns the bike shop on the high street, could. Has that contributed to an issue that we're seeing now for bike shops? I don't think so. I think it's it's just really the lack of stock. Generally, it's it's almost feels as though everywhere is sold out, whether you're online, in-store. <laughs> so the demand really outstripped any level of supply um mm. but certainly in normal times that was um that it was more of an issue in, in that um i'm sure a lot of independents were finding it very hard to compete against prices and, and customers would often walk in with um, a load of online purchases and ask for them to be fitted on the bike and that had become quite a, a normal everyday occurrence really so I think it's really just, I don't think it's necessarily fueled the fact that um, smaller dealers can't get the kit because it was always coming in in a slightly different way anyway. Um, you know, whether it was Shimano, SRAM, Campag or 
um, you know, or whatever the other components you might be using. So um, there was always a bit of a grey market um, whereby the, the online players, the bigger online players, could be far more competitive. You mentioned it there, those those people that come in with, uh, I've got a cassette and I got it from, um, I will mention them, you know, Wiggle, Chain Reaction, whatever, those people, right? And they got it for 25 quid and actually retails at 55. Can you fit it? And your heart must slightly bleed for the bike industry because of the fact that, you know, they're not getting it from you, but they expect that full service from you as if they did buy it from you. Equally, there must be some hilarious moments where you get people that have come in that have tried to build that canyon out of a box and they've really got it wrong. What are the worst offenders? You know, we see people with backwards forks, um, you know, brakes that are just dragging like what's what's the what's the classic can you make can you fix this for me please mate yeah it does happen i mean that's that's a really sort of fairly typical scenario the mechanics face um is usually the one that um is the best one to see um when that happens because they sort of do it is their profession and you know it's their they're there to to serve um our, our customers obviously but um yeah it's where you do have people who have had a, a bit of a go uh, themselves, the DIY mechanic, and with all you know, good intentions, and then um, it's it is often quite funny to see what sort of state <laughs> people have managed to get themselves into, and they often come in bleeding, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> um, and they haven't fallen off their bike. It's just been, I think, the sheer frustration of um, trying to set gears and or even get a gear on a bike. Um, but yeah, it's just life, really, and you know, I think market forces determine how people will act and, and certainly purchase. So um, we will we embrace it. Um, I, it's really it's hard because I'm, I'm, a lot of dealers don't they feel very um, with I think begrudged to the fact that um, their sort of loyal customer has just spent the best part of a grand on a, a group set and walk in with um, a cardboard box with wiggle or chain reaction written all over it and um, say can you fit this to my bike that I bought from you five years ago <laughs> you sort of go um, right yes okay <laughs> but you you have to sort of just take it on the chin but you know those customers stay loyal in a, in a different way and um, it's not to say that they then won't make a a more major purchase or they won't keep coming in to pick up various essentials and um, or, or buy clothing or we'll buy something um, alternative that um, you're offering um, as well as your service. I was going to say that's an opportunity for the in the like for a, for a shop like Pearson is that that's when you can offer something that no online retailer can and, and you touch upon is service which is always which is so important in for anyone who rides a bike is is that service is the the advice the opinion the expertise and and it's something that no online retailer can do amazon can't give me the same advice and opinion as foils on Tottenham court road cam you know the guy who works in there or the woman who's worked in there for 25 years and it's that's when someone comes into pearson with a new jury race group set and it's like can you fit this to my bike and you'll have a mechanic there who's been you know working on bikes for quarter of a century and that's where you've got the advantage and will always have the advantage over any behemoth online which must be you know must be so useful it is uh, I, th- I think there's there's a lot of um, what we were talking about um just before we went on air with um our conversation was about the collaborative nature of 
people being together in workplaces and comparing notes and you know and, and really debating around everything cycling um, which happens on a daily basis within I imagine any cycle um, business where you 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 learn every day you know you learn something that is interesting um, or even a, a point of view that might be changed by somebody else's opinion or experience and um, we've tried to really translate that um, online um, with our bike selling and also our bike fitting now and I, I think giving that element of advice um, in an online in a digital um, environment is probably not something that you would necessarily get with bigger players so we can still offer extensive advice and we our, our chat through the website is lit up pretty much the whole day it's it's something that you know we we almost struggle to keep up with on some days that the um, information that's coming out um, from our staff is is pretty much gold dust you know whether people take it completely on board or not it's it's a, a pretty balanced opinion I, I think just being immersed in cycling for so many years and a lot of the staff who will always be riding their bikes to and from work who will be a bit like you they'll be racing at weekends um mm. not necessarily with your sort of times but um you know they'll <laughs> be on their bikes <laughs> <laughs> or they'll be riding to the pub you know more like you James but the um <laughs> so but there's one of those things where you really do live and breathe it and you know that information is always something that we have felt was engaging for people and kept customers loyal um in that if you can advise um in the most knowledgeable way that you can and most trusted way that you can then people will return um and they, they will give us um, you know a lot of following even if they do um, every now and then turn up with um, something that they've bought online or they've bought from me you know a, a friend or, or whatever we have to see those as opportunities and that's that's a word that comes up a lot um, I've heard you use um, in the last you know this interview um, and across the bike industry opportunity there is a real sense of an opportunity here in so many respects and you recently penned well recently I say recently time flies it was almost this time last year it feels so recent uh COVID brain whatever but in May you wrote a kind of uh blog post open letter kind of thing essentially saying you know look at what's going on yes we're in the middle of lockdown but there is this buzz of opportunity around cycling what did you mean by that and where has that buzz gone did we manage to capitalize on it Yes, it's a, really, it's a really good question. And uh, I think at uh, the time um, of probably later on in, in the, well, it was probably coming out of the first lockdown, Boris was promising this golden era of cycling and to, to get people mobilised again. Um, and partly following the success of, I suppose, getting people on bikes <laughs> by COVID, I don't think it was intended, um, but an amazing amazing offshoot of such a tragic situation really and I felt that having seen children of under the age of 10 riding um, down the South Circular Road um, unaccompanied by an adult um, in lockdown um, just sort of it, it made me think you know it doesn't have to be completely like this where we've got 10 ton trucks rolling up and down um, the upper Richmond Road every day with people scared 
to put their kids out on the roads and mm. people scared to commute into work or to make even local journeys. Um, there was a real opportunity where Boris had talked about this uh, this golden era of cycling, potentially more of a knee-jerk reaction because things were and are so fluid as we as we speak, but yeah. um, really mobilising people back onto bikes and you know, the journeys that are made by um, so many motorists are under five miles, under three miles, um, the majority being, um, you know, certainly locally. And I'm not saying that the bike is the answer for absolutely every every journey made, but it is the answer for a lot of them. And just giving the um, policy and the, the confidence to um, certainly new cyclists and, and those existing cyclists, and, you know, probably one of the reasons that I, I tend to prefer riding um a gravel bike now is you, know, you can get away from the, the hubbub and and the traffic and one of the major reasons that when we speak to customers of what their concerns are um for riding a bike and it it always comes down to safety you know whether it's for themselves or for the kids or for their mum or dad on a bike whatever it might be safety is what we saw in the lockdown that started, i think suddenly encouraged that eight-year-old's um, to be riding up the upper Richmond road on a you know on a 20 inch wheel bike it's a 24 inch wheel bike it was just extraordinary and I think that opportunity has to an extent been missed now there, there was almost a, a window of people going back to work of I know, it was probably about eight or nine weeks when Boris first talked about that where we could have seen more temporary cycle lanes a, a, a lot of um, London bars I'm speaking for London more exclusively but I think um, across the UK it goes to say whether you're in a city um, a major city or a town um, there was some there was a reaction a bit of a knee-jerk reaction where bike lanes were put in place a lot of them not particularly helpful um, uh, some of them quite helpful um, which gave people confidence to start riding and a lot of those have just disappeared and the whole noise around that um has seems to have gone very quiet do you think that more should have been done from government to uh, sort of tackle that mindset of how bike cyclists are considered on the road and how the relationship between a cyclist and a motorist because all three of us are very experienced cyclists and we've we understand very well what the relationship between us as a cyclist and that of a motorist can be like but do you think more should have been done to sort of not just sort of, as you said, knee jerk, here's some bike lanes, ride them, but actually explain, well, actually, you should you should ride and this is why you should ride and, and make it a positive thing and less of a, because I still think massively it's a, an us and them situation on the road. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I think there's um, there, there is a definite um, battle between what seems to be motorists and and cyclists but a lot of motorists are cyclists and i'm not saying that every motorist is um evil because you know there's a lot of necessity um out there for for um, jumping in a car and um but i don't think there is enough legislation to to protect um people who are considering riding bikes and and until it becomes um something that where people are more confident um, there's there's infrastructure there's perhaps some of the legalities around um cycling that are put into place and that doesn't it doesn't happen overnight but i think we should be working towards um the fact that 
um, cycling shouldn't be seen as being a dangerous thing because it's not, you know, it's, it, it's not entirely what people's perception of it is um, a lot of the time. A segregated bike lanes and the segregation of traffic like that, is that a useful thing, do you think? Uh, I think to encourage those, you know, the, the people that we, I suppose, have seen in the in Richmond Park who are the new cyclists um, who don't necessarily have the confidence to to shift them from being leisure um, cyclists and um, you know, just out there to, to get a bit of fitness to using the bike or buying bikes that are a bit more utilitarian and everyday, um, then segregation of lanes is one of the ways where people um, gain their confidence and that they feel more protected. The issue is, is generally space on the road. Um, typically, I, I know in um, in Tooting, uh, there was uh, cycle lanes put in the main high road, which brought the whole place to a, a standstill, especially with emergency vehicles trying to get to the um, local hospital um, when traffic was gridlocked both ways and cars couldn't move aside to, to even let um, emergency vehicles through. You know, there's often the thinking around um, planning and alternative cycle routes that don't have to hit the main highways um, but are still quieter um, or um, cyclists are given priority over over cars I think there's there's lots of ways you can do it and we always look to, to, to places like Holland um, to see how it's done I think there's again there's probably historically been more space allocated to cycling and therefore you, you see a lot greater and it is flat <laughs> a lot of the, the towns and cities obviously in the UK aren't aren't particularly flat but that, you know that that does help people but yeah segregation is is certainly one way but I think there are lots of others that um, would inspire people to to jump on their bikes when they wouldn't do normally yeah I mean yeah one of the ones that always springs into my head is um Cyclovia or Cyclovia the uh weekly sort of mini festival that they do in uh, places like it's, it's sprung up in Colombia um so Medellin and Bogota where they just shut seriously large sections of town I think they have 60 kilometers of shut road on a Sunday morning in Medellin which would normally just be full of pounding traffic and we've seen some of that in the UK to a degree um we are all Londoners here so we see that in in Richmond Park which is um large royal park that often has lots of cars meandering through just to look at the pretty deer um on a saturday or sunday but now that's shut to cars um on the weekend and like you say you see so many more cyclists and i wonder if that's that's a way in, a way in for a lot of people is give them a designated chunk of town on a designated quiet traffic day and just say come out and roller skate run cycle just be outside yeah, I think it, uh, anything like that. It's um, it's a shame it just has to happen on a on a Sunday. You know, it should almost yeah. be that should be knitted in in some way to mm. daily life. In that, you know, people would celebrate jumping on their bike and tearing into to work, or you know, or just going for a ride um, where they feel that they you know they they have the full confidence that they're um, going to enjoy it as opposed to sort of be worried about it. So, yeah, I, I think all of those types of things are, are amazing to promote cycling, but it, it really 
needs to be ingrained in our in our daily life and mm. and become habitual uh it's it's extraordinary one one of the um quite lasting um memories of we do some business in belgium and whenever um i go over there i'm always taken aback by in the mornings the amount of children and adults who are dressed in relatively normal clothing they're not necessarily fully lycra up and um, by any means majority aren't and they're off to school they're off to work they're off to do their errands um streams and streams of them i mean in extraordinary um scenes and a lot of that is happening i think um certainly in the uk cycling is so popular it's not seen as being our everyday though not not completely beyond um you know the, the commuters that commute now it's it's not seen as an answer to moving people or even moving goods around yeah it's not it's, it's certainly not transport yet in the uk it's still very much hobby or competition in as i see it anyway it's not um and even i'm guilty of this and i cycle a lot i, I still wouldn't think for my first thought is not to be like oh, i'll get on the bike and ride to the shop i suppose the technology in e-bikes is now uh, is coming on far quicker than it ever has done and yeah for people to do longer distances and to carry a heavy loads the e-bike is is really the future for i think a lot of people um mm. who are not necessarily cyclists now um but would see it as a way of getting somewhere efficiently um in terms of timing cheaply and um, once you've made your initial um purchase and i understand there's there's government schemes that are happening beyond a normal cycle to work scheme where grants are going to be available for e-bikes mm. um, i think up to 30 percent um, grants on any e-bike which again will really propel e-bikes into our everyday um, and get a lot more people um, riding in, in a way that's utilitarian as opposed to um, for the for the sport of it is that something Pearson's exploring then? Because it does feel like, well, I mean, when you go to Europe, e-bikes are already massive in some parts of the, you know, you go to Germany, you go to the Netherlands. Uh, I've been to a few trade shows like Eurobike, which are these massive, you know, massive trade shows that previously used to be predominantly about what's new in the road industry. Now you go and, and, and you go to a, one of these trade shows and literally road, gravel is an afterthought you know the 75 percent of the, the show is about e-bikes and and cargo e-bikes and and ways of tra- moving transport more efficiently and then it's like oh yeah and there's the new um shimana group set at the back of the back of the hall if you want to go see that which is really really exciting to see but it hasn't yet translated over to here in the uk but do you think it will and are you are you excited for that and are you ready as a business to to grasp that very much so yeah we're we're working on a, a couple of models um now you know we've been around for 160 years and you know we're, we're not going away um so we, we do it within our own time scale we do want it to be a more, more immediate part of our our range plan In, interestingly just one, one um little study we're doing with um an architect and um a company who look at commissioning buildings in towns for the um, for their suitability to receive active transport members of staff whether they're coming in by 
bike or they're running in or if they're mm. scooting in or roller skating, whatever you like, <laughs> you know, the building requirements for a lot of companies are not adequate to accommodate the, the sheer demand of those people now changing the way that they, they get into work. And um, uh, they've done a small study in the, um, for the architects by actually having a, a, uh, an e-bike you can extend the pool of employees that you might attract to a certain business by at least another 5k um they're saying minimum within a town so or a city purely because it becomes the range of, of getting into work if you're uh basically on an average of a 45 minute commute it suddenly increases the amount of people that could potentially access your your business who you can attract to your business and if you've got the facilities there to be able to accommodate your bike and lock it up safely have a shower if you if you do break a sweat if you come in by if if you're trying to break your your tt record um <laughs> or your, your your pvs um you know you've got the facilities there to be able to lock your bike lock your kit away um shower and and then get into work feeling fresh yeah 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 and i think um a, a larger business so cyclist is part of a much larger um publishing house called dennis publishing so it's a big building and we are in the minority as cyclists and i think all of those other employees would be very happy if we all jumped on e-bikes certainly and there was that kind of provision for charging because it's not a good look when you're showing clients around and it's November and everyone's bib tights are dripping wet hung around the office slowly drying in that way that gym kit can only dry with the accompanying smell so yeah I'm all I'm all for e-bikes but I do wonder what you make of other wheel two-wheel transport in that regards because again harking back to uh, my, my home roots of Pompey Portsmouth is Portsmouth City Council has just decided that it's going to be okay and they're going to trial electric scooters uh, Bristol is another city that's done the same thing with electric scooters. You're technically supposed to have a license. I've absolutely seen what I would describe as children back home in Portsmouth on these things. I don't know how they're getting them out. And I wonder if that's just going to suddenly just, you know, cat amongst the pigeons, spanner in the works, whatever you want to call it, to um, to, to us commuting on bicycles. What, what do you guys make of that over at Pearson? I think there's a place for, for it. And if it takes another car off the road, then great what if someone said you're going to have to have bike licenses from now on what do you you know from talking to your customers and stuff how do you do you think we could ever embrace that in this country uh i don't think that you you'd necessarily need to you know providing the the uh e-bikes adhere to um the restrictions that are put in place and then the speed restrictions um then there, there shouldn't be um but where you do see uh, those people who are tearing along on an e-bike at um, 30 plus miles an hour, then, you know, I think that they they should be um, dealt with like any other person who, who is um, potentially speeding within a, you know, 20 mile an hour speed limit. I'm not saying that uh, cyclists don't can't go that fast either because um, they, they do, but you almost take away this, the element of freedom and the attractiveness of um, riding. And if it, it's, it's hard enough almost to, to convert people onto bikes to then really start regulating them to such a degree that they, you know, they think, well, I might as well just stick in the, in the car or, or not bother. There, I think there should be a certain amount of regulation, but it should be, um, it, it should be 
sensible regulation um, and also adhering to to those legalities that are set out for um, e-bikes in the UK um, is all you really should need to do. Well, that's thank you so much for your insights. It's great to talk to somebody who is at that sharp end, the coalface, you know, that's inside seeing what most of us just see from the outside, you know, looking through that shop window, hoping to one day be able to afford a nice Pearson. Um, but before we go, we always do this at the end. We ask a few um, quick fire questions to our guests. So don't think too, don't think too hard about these. And uh, Joe and I will rattle through um, a couple and uh, yeah, it'd be great to get your thoughts. So I'll, I'll kick off. Is £10,000 too expensive for a road bike? Certainly not. We've heard through the grapevine that you have some high profile customers. Who's the most famous Pearson cyclist? Oh God! Um, oh well, there's a few really. Gordon Ramsay, uh, Tom Hardy. Is it Mickey Flanagan a, a Pearson cyclist? Isn't he? He. Uh, I'm not sure if he's really carried on cycling that much, but he did do a series, and we <laughs> we helped him out. And yeah, he he's he's been great. We've just built a um a bike for Maxine Peak actually, who lives up um in in the Peaks. What does what does Ramsey ride? Has he got good taste in bikes? He has actually. He's been riding Pearson um, off grid on the gravel bikes and with his wife. Um, but we also made him a couple of gurus, um, which are now defunct, unfortunately. Mm, yeah. Um, who guru made beautiful, beautiful bikes. Um, probably spent too much time making their bikes, unfortunately, <laughs> to make enough money to keep them afloat. But um, we made him a TT bikes. So he he was um, turning his hand to um, Iron Man. And he has actually got size 50 feet. They are enormous, um, great things. So when he comes to the swim, he's he's already got a pair of flippers um, <laughs> propelling him and a, a, a really nice road bike. And um, at that point, I just say, look, you know, if you are going to be um, this famous and you are going to live in America for half the year in, in the UK, it does mean that you need another set of bikes in the US. So um, prepare to buy two more. At which point he told me to f off, <laughs> but then Julie two weeks later then ordered them, which was which was fantastic. So brilliant. Um, steel, carbon, alloy, or tie? I, I really love titanium um, because I'm old. Because I've had a second COVID jab. Amazingly. <laughs> <laughs> Will Pearson, ladies and gentlemen, one half of the owners of the current custodians, fifth generation custodians of. Uh, Pearson bikes with his brother Guy um, good rider as well is Will um, he's one of those people that lives lives the cycling dream um, did rather kind of burst a lot of bubbles there though it's tough it's not what you thought it's not what we saw in the media as in bike shops going this is the most roaringest of trades I've had in 25 years of owning a bike shop it's been you know it's a double-edged sword there's demands but meeting that demand is difficult Pearson is Started in 1860, right? So I'm sure it's seen its own fair share of supply issues. And it's got it pretty dialed because it does have its own house bikes. So I think they've probably been in a different position to, to many. But at the same time, advising people not to buy your bike because it doesn't fit is kind of is pervert. I mean, it's great. That's what, it's, that's what it should be. But can you imagine that? Like you're, you're turning customers away knowing that you can't sell them anything. And it's quite, it's quite, a, it's quite telling that I'd say Pearson probably sit at the top of a tree in terms of the independent bike shop, right? So they probably are. They're like the gold standard of what gold standard, sorry, of what an independent bike shop should look like. 
and there are a few others around the UK that would be of a very similar mould and very similar stable and very stable in their business. But it's shown you that even they can't get access to stuff. So when the consumer, the reader, the listener is like, I can't get a 105 cassette and they go to their bike shop and they blame the bike shop. It's not the bike shop. The bike shop then goes to the distributor in the UK and it's not the distributor's problem because they can't get the product in. It goes all the way to the top. It goes all the way at the moment to, you know, even beyond Shimano because it's even down to like getting raw materials that's an issue at the moment. It's not even like Shimano are just not making enough cassettes or Trek are not making enough frames or, you know, Vittoria are not making enough tyres. It's that, that there's issues with getting enough, enough rubber in, enough carbon fibre in, enough metal, yeah. like enough alloy in, which is insane. It goes all the way to the top, Joey, all the way to the top. Yeah, I mean, it's just a knock-on effect, and it's one of the many things that we should all be wary of, which is uh, mass manufacturing globalisation, where you've got too many things stacked up on too many things, and but there are, still aren't many of those things, right? You need, you need more multiple, you know, kind of manufacturing streams, as it were, whereas suddenly if you've got, like, a handful of factories in one area producing a lot of stuff for a lot of people in subsequent areas when that you know there's a chink in that chain everything falls down it's such a precarious system it's such a precarious system that all you need is one like you said a chink in the armor which is has been the covid pandemic or brexit because both have been a, of a big problem for the uk bike industry and i will prove to be even further and the offset of it is massive like we were talking about local bike shops before we came on. My local bike shop, Wellin, I've been using the guy for years, really lovely guy. He's turning away business at the moment, not because he's too busy, but because he can't do what these people need. Yeah, He's looking at, a, like, there are parts, there are Shimano parts that are out of stock till 2023. That is... Two years. That is just absolutely absolutely bonkers this isn't like really obscure this is not like someone who's riding a really obscure frame and needs a really niche headset size this is like mainstream stuff mate this is like yeah like a rear hanger or jockey wheels or or stuff that is so integral and normally in a normal time would be easy to pick up so cheap to pick up and now aren't and even other stuff i've noticed anecdotally look at wiggle at the moment right Wiggle aren't doing, like, Wiggle's selling everything at RIP, which is telling. Like, that, they used to be the ultimate, everything would be at least 25% off, 30% off. I don't think I ever spent full price on a pair of Shimano cleats, for example. But now they're having to sell them at full price because the stock's not there. The, the, it's mad. It's totally bonkers. The idea that you'd wait, uh, what did I buy not so long ago? Um, a set of calipers, uh, 105s, possibly. Dior, if that, yeah. Anyway, set of um, rim brake calipers, and they were on order for three weeks, which sounds that's probably not even that bad a situation compared to lots of stuff. But back, you know, I'd expect that you'd all expect that to come like two days delivery time, and those parts to be stacked up in you know warehouses full of these things because they're so ubiquitous and they're not there. But it's just like it's just such an, an if you delve into it, it's such an utter mess. And how do you diversify? Like another example, so my dad bought a bike in December, 
I think maybe in November he bought a, he's bought a Ribble hybrid on the side like to, to as a cycle to work kind of thing, so he doesn't have to use his road bike to get to work. So it's just a classic like, run of the mill like eight hundred quid hybrid. He it's basically been sitting almost fully built in Ripple's factory for nine months now because they're missing like literally two parts from Shimano. And my dad keeps getting in contact with them. They're like, look, it's not the, you know, we've built the frame, everything's done, wheels are on it. We literally just need two parts from Shimano for the group set. And he's just, and he's just getting pushed back and pushed back. And like, it's not Rimble's fault. And it's not Shimano in the UK's fault either, really. And it's mental, like, especially at a point where post-pandemic, you'd be really hoping, and this kind of harks back to previous conversations with people like Chris Bourbon, that we could really harness how popular cycling became during that time and we can really make it a viable alternative as in terms of transport. But at the moment, you can't buy a bike, you can't buy parts for your bike and people aren't going to make cycling their primary form of transport if they can't do it or there are barriers involved. And at the moment, there are a lot of barriers involved in terms of product and man- and getting the parts and if I snap my chain I could not have a chain for three months <laughs> and therefore I can't ride my bike <laughs> like yeah it is it is a it is a mess and I'm always I'm amazed when people do manage to like get bikes like just hearing that your dad's I mean I know he hasn't actually got it now <laughs> because it's sitting in a warehouse waiting for stuff in theory uh because because the other thing is we shouldn't you know we shouldn't take it for granted that our because I mean we should be supporting our local bike shops that's another whole other topic shouldn't take for granted that they're selling bikes hand over fist and doing really well because there has been a spike in revenue and turnover that's definitely there but they are looking at the future and seeing it not looking that rosy because there'll be there's i've spoken to a bunch for an article we wrote and um you've got people who are putting in their orders for 40 bikes from brand x whatever you know there because each bike shop sells certain bikes and based on that demand and then that brand is coming back and saying we can only give you two and it's like great literally what am i supposed to do next year then or you over order and the demand doesn't sit doesn't go and then you have to sell through your old stock at a reduced rate which means that you're losing money or not making money at the same time as not knowing if you can get your new stock in because the other thing is people will consumers are programmed to want the latest thing and so they'll hold out and they will only buy the latest bike or they'll wait for the latest bike to come out. Meanwhile, leaving people with bikes that are just slowly becoming, they look on the surface sort of obsolete because they're a model year out. So this is the idea that if we skipped a model year, that would really help because otherwise what will happen is what its stock is there, which eventually then does come through, those bikes do get built up, suddenly get superseded concurrently with all of the new models that are happening at the same time rendering that other stock very difficult to sell. So, so you're saying that almost like the bike industry needs to take like a, almost like a hiatus. Yeah, but it needs to make a, a unilateral. And that, and this is a whole other uh, conundrum too. And topic is like, should we have such a high turnover of model in model years? And that doesn't just go for cycling. That goes for TVs. It goes for MacBooks. It goes for fashion. Like... There, there's like more pairs of socks in the world now than there would ever have been needed for the entire of humanity put together. 
times a hundred, but yet we'll still be buying more socks. And that is fostered in the way that there is a high there's a high turnover for stuff, and you're told that this this thing is no longer current. You need the most current thing. And maybe there is we need to just like look at that particular bikes and just think be more, be more Shimano. Shimano doesn't bring out a group set every year at all. It does it every four years, pretty much. Like Jurace gets an update every four years, um, and that maybe is a more sensible way of doing it than saying, "Oh, look, you know, not to single out Trek, but here's the Demane 2021. Here's the Demane 2022. Maybe this should just be the Demane for a bit. Stays as is. Maybe you get some different colours. And ultimately, the the these bikes aren't being overhauled. Normally, they'll have paint jobs." They'll, they'll come out in a new paint job. And maybe, is it the marketing? Is it the branding behind it? Is it the fact that they're saying, this is the 2021 range, this is the 2021 edition, and therefore people are being lulled into a sense of, this is a newer bike with differences. And ultimately, a lot of brands, and I'm not going to single out any, will send us press releases or marketing pieces where they'll be claiming it's a half a percentage faster, or we've defined we've you know we've slightly tweaked the way we've laid up the carbon which means it saved you the same weight as a 20 pence piece and and that's enough whereas really should bike brands just be going here's the new trek demano here's the new cannondale super six evo this isn't going to get an update until we have some real significant drastic changes like for instance when the super six evo not too long ago dropped its seat stays bumped up its tyre clearance, became a completely different bike to the one it had been before. Yeah, I mean, they should. maybe they should, but it would take everyone to do the same thing. Otherwise, you're feeling like you're being left behind. And it's this weird thing, right? We see this in publishing um, with Cyclist Magazine and Bike Magazines. If you look at the spine of Cyclist, or you look at the spine of Rouleau, or you look at the spine of Cycling Plus, whatever... You'll look at your watch or your phone and it will tell you it's July. You look at the spine and the spine might even say September. It's probably going to say August. You're like, what is that? And that's historically from one person being like, we'll just sort of make our magazine just look a bit newer. We'll say it's August, even though, and then it'll make the July ones of our competitors just look a little bit out of date. And it's And it just doesn't make any kind of sense other than that's driven by internally and so to sort of reverse that takes everyone to sign up to reversing it which brands won't which brands won't well exactly they won't and also if you're um if you're cannondale it's one it's one thing to say that the synapse is going to be the same frame maybe a different color from 2021 to 2022 but at the same time if you're stocking sram parts then maybe suddenly sram has got um a uh, has got an etap version of rival Suddenly, you put that on your 2022 bikes, but not the 2021. Even though the frames are the same, that older 2021 bike doesn't look like the latest thing. So what are you going to do as a consumer? Are you going to buy what is basically last year's less good thing on this bike? So it takes everybody. So ultimately, we just need some sort of communistic uh, sort of regulation of the entire industry where everyone releases their new product on January 1st. At this or August first, at the same time, and they don't for another two two years. You're not allowed to bring out a new product. You got to basically use the 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 road roadworks system 
that Spain has, which is why lots of the roads in Spain are great, is you get one opportunity, you put in your thing, if you're the water company, if you're the electricity board, the gas company, you submit what work needs to be done, and unless it's emergency remedial work, you submit it months before, it all gets cleared, and you get to dig up the road at the same time, and all do your stuff, and then you fill it back in again, and you skim it, and jobs are good, and it's, and it's left like that. You don't come in and be like, oh, I just need to go back and do this thing, or can I do this thing in January, and not February, whatever. Mate, I think we've solved the bike industry here. If you're listening, bike industry, you know where to reach us. We'll take two percent off the top. Exactly. Cheers. But it did did get us thinking, didn't it, Jay? It did get us thinking about our local bike shops from back in the day. And I had a brilliant one, which was Portsmouth Cycle Exchange, which still exists and was where my sister and I were got all of our bikes from. Mostly, not all of them actually. Sometimes Friday ads, but it's where we get them serviced. So I first came across the idea that I might like to be a mechanic. And it's also where I came across the idea that I really didn't want to be a mechanic because I realised that the same mechanic had been working there for 10 years and looked progressively more and more pissed off <laughs> with the whole situation. Always has had hands covered in oil, always wearing the same overalls and always stinking of fags and always just like seemingly pretty reticent to want to do anything for your bike for money. <laughs> and then I asked him one day how much he got paid and it wasn't a lot. And then you understood why you didn't want to do any work on your bike. Yeah, exactly. Because you, you think like, oh yeah, I'll be a bike mechanic and I'll just get to work on these cool bikes. No, you won't. You'll get to work on people's bikes that haven't been out of the shed for two years. And realistically, they're just very dirty and they're not and they're not fun to work on. They don't look cool. They don't leave you like feeling like... Basically, it's like being a car mechanic. Not every car is going to be a Ferrari. Yeah, you're going to be like changing the tyre of a little girl's Disney bike. More often than you'll be, you know... Installing a red ETAP group set. Yeah, indexing Campagnolo Super Record. Exactly. I, I do wonder if I could if I could go and go into the Ports of Cycle Exchange now and just like... They, if I showed them a Super Record mech, they probably wouldn't know what it was. They'd be like um, the sort of like natives in Captain Cook's day that just stared straight through the ships because they'd never seen anything like it. It was off the spectrum of understanding. Like That's the sad, sad fact of it is... But at the same time, you need those people. And they were, in the same breath, really fantastic to little kids like me that sort of hung around and pestered them. They did do the work. They probably, you know, they lent you a spanner. They pumped out your tyres for free, whatever. And also, they were the bastion of second-hand bikes, which was really important because you couldn't afford brand-new bikes. And they had a high turnover of just all kinds of second-hand bikes, uh, third, well, you know, second-hand, third-hand, fourth-hand, whatever, to suit all budgets, and they still do, and that's a very necessary thing in a community. So I salute you, Ports of Cycle Exchange. I salute you. Lovely. Well, on that note, on that, on that that note, I'm not going to tell you about my local bike shop because it's, well, boring. I only went in there once. I used to just go to the Cathlon across the river, I feel like. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> so we'll, we'll bring an end to the episode there, James. Uh, thanks for listening. Uh, if you like this episode, make sure you give us a like, subscribe, all that old carry on. Um, subscribe to the magazine if you want to as well. Big thanks to Lindsay, our producer, for putting together the episodes and having to cut down a load of our waffle, I assume, this week. She'll have plenty of that to do. Uh, but for now, we will leave you and in two weeks' time be back with another episode for your ears. So, James, I will see you later. See you later, Joseph.